So this morning, as I said, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And, and really what we see going on here is the application part of uh, maybe a mini-sermon, we could say, in Paul's letter here. And this, this message that Paul is teaching or explaining and illustrating and then applying starts all the way in 27. Now, if you've been here with us for an extended period of time, we've been going through the book of Philippians. And if you remember what happened in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul is exhorting or challenging the Philippian church here to live as citizens of heaven. He's saying, look, I know that you're citizens of Rome. I know you're facing persecution. I know, because I am a Roman, that it would be easy to rely on your Roman citizenship. But you, as Christians, are called first and foremost to be citizens of heaven. We here in the 21st century, as Christians, are called to be citizens of heaven first and foremost and not citizens of America. And so he tells them early on how they can do this. So citizens of heaven, and how do you do this? Being of one mind, one spirit, striving side by side together for the sake of the gospel. And by doing so, not being frightened by any of your opponents, but instead, when you live as citizens and you're of one mind, one spirit, striving side by side, you actually put your opponents to shame. And when you're doing this as a collective group, as a body of Christ, as the church here, it's actually showing you your salvation. It's a true marker of your salvation when you are unified in one mind, one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But then Paul quickly warns them and tells them, but hey, persecution is going to come when you do this. Because it has come to me. And I'm calling you, just as Christ has called me, to engage in the conflict. And so... Paul takes some time to then explain what it means to be of one mind, one spirit, striving side by side. Paul is calling this church to be unified for the sake of the gospel right here. And so he goes on in verses uh, 1 through 11 by saying, So if there is absolutely any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, if there's just even a mustard seed of faith inside of you, just an ounce of Christ inside of you, then complete my joy by being, here we go again, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of and of one mind. And so how... Do we do this? Well, Paul is continuing to explain what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests and needs, but to the interests of others. And we do this 
Because this is the mind that we ourselves should have in Christ Jesus. Those who have any encouragement in Christ, they should have this mind. Why? All right, so now Paul is going to switch his explanation into an illustration, and he gives the greatest illustration that a person could possibly hear when it comes to being unified through humility. And that's he just looks at the life of Christ. And he says, we live like this as a unified church, counting the needs of others more important than ours because this is what Christ has done for us. God has done the most amazing thing for us and he has counted our needs and he's seen that we need reconciliation with him. And so he empties himself and he humbles himself by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the likeness of men, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, he is then highly exalted. And so we have one that we can look to. And so here this morning in verses 12 through 18, what Paul is doing is he's now going to apply this. So he's been explaining this, he illustrated it for us, and now he's going to apply it for us. If there's any type of way that you've been taking notes long enough here, then hopefully I've done a good job to show you this is just all I'm trying to do. (laughs) Explain, illustrate, apply. Explain, illustrate, and apply. And so, we come to this passage This morning, and we see what Paul is clearly just going to apply this is he's going to say, Working out your salvation will cause you to shine bright in a dark world. And boy, oh boy, does the church need to work out its salvation. Because here's the reality right now that we're seeing in this world. Here's the reality that we're seeing here in America is that people are in a dark room with outstretched arms trying to turn on the light. Why do you think there's so many causes and missions right now that people are trying to pursue? The dignity of humans. Justice for others. It's because deep down in everybody's heart, they know that there is a creator who has created them with dignity. And they know that there is a creator that will bring justice. But instead of looking to God's word, what we tend to do is we just tend to stay in the dark, stretching our hands out, hoping that we turn the light on. And here's the reality. The church, the people of God, since the Old Testament to right now, have always been called to be the light in the darkness. And so here's my call for us this morning is that we need to desperately be introspective today and look at our hearts and ask the hard question, okay, maybe, just maybe, instead of complaining about what's going on in the world, particularly in America and how dark it is, maybe we need to ask the question, has the church really been a light to this world? Or have we been so focused on buildings and people and things that it's 
the only natural conclusion that now this place that we live in is just with their arms outstretched. Think of all of the organizations that are going on. And so, Paul is going to tell us, working out our salvation will cause you to shine bright in a dark world. And we come to verse 12, and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. This is, this is the thing that every church planter, as they leave, wants to hear again from their church. You've obeyed the word of God, not only in my presence, but in my absence. This past week, I was looking through the minutes of different meetings, annual meetings that we have, and it would be as if Dave, who was the church planter here, I don't even know if he's still alive. I would think that maybe he is, but he might not be. But it would be as if he called back and he heard, the people here are still obeying the word of God even while I've been gone. This is Paul addressing the whole church, my beloved, just as if you always obeyed in my presence and now in my absence. And what he says next is staggering. Some, some people pit this against Paul. Some people read this and say, see, this is why our salvation is works-based. This isn't the case at all, and we're going to see this. As Paul goes on to tell them, in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. You haven't been called to be passive about working out your salvation. Now what does Paul mean by this? Well, we need to really look at what he's saying here. He's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not work towards your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a huge difference here. And sadly, when we come to this passage, a lot of people can read this passage accidentally implying that this is what Paul is meaning. That I am to continuously work towards my salvation, to my salvation. That if I want to reach paradise, if I want to reach heaven, then I need to work for it. And oh, that is a burden that you and I cannot meet. We cannot work to earn our salvation in any form or capacity because our hearts are desperately wicked above all else. As God even points out after the flood, man's thoughts and intentions are evil and wicked. The, the, the psalmist so clearly puts it. No one does good. No, not even one. All of our Works are like filthy rags. We can't earn our salvation. So Paul isn't saying that we need to earn our salvation. He's saying we need to work it out. A term which is called progressive sanctification. So there's a, a word that you could throw out at the dinner table if you want to. Well, I was at church, and we talked about progressive sanctification today. What progressive sanctification means is living by faith and works. Meaning, 
putting to death the deeds of your flesh by the Spirit. Now here's the thing. I know we're all good Baptists and we're all good Protestants and we would say, yes, of course, it's by faith alone that we are saved. We stand on those grounds. Of course, Paul is talking about working out your salvation and that we can't earn our salvation, but, but wait here. Here's where we need to be careful because we are justified in the sight of God when we repent and believe in Jesus. We can't get any more saved than we already are right now if we believe that Jesus has died for us. But there's a problem still. We have the sneaky seductiveness of our sin that is still in our hearts. And so this is where we need to be introspective and ask ourselves the real question. Even as Christians, we could turn to the book of Galatians and see this, even as Christians, sin sneaks into our hearts and lies to us, telling us he doesn't love you unless you work to earn his affections. Or, I know I'm saved by faith through grace, but I've got some character flaws on the outside and, and I need to show people that I have my morals together. My behavior's good. As Jesus puts it to the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs. Pharisees believed, hey, look, this is a, maybe a bit of a misconception. In the Old Testament, the way of salvation was taught by faith. You didn't work for your salvation in the Old Testament. It was by faith. They trusted in the promised Messiah of the Lord. And so when we get to the New Testament and Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees and telling them, look, you're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. He's talking about these religious hypocrites that all they were doing is on the outside trying to be morally good people. But on the inside, they were completely dead. And so we can come to this passage and see it in two types of ways. And I'm sure most of you have lived through this. This is my experience. On, on the one side, I've been told, okay, the way you want to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is this. You just got to let go and let God. Let me tell you, that is just one, I just hate that saying. It's not scripture. It's letting go and letting God. As soon as you start to let go, you have to say, I got to let go of letting go. Because as soon as I start to let go, then I'm trying not to let go. It's the most confusing theological statement I've ever heard. This is a very passive way of dealing with sin and sanctification. I don't really have to do anything. I just really just need to ignore everything that's going on over here. But then on the other side, we have this way where we try to control every little way and we become legalistic about things. And so then we start creating rules around rules because I'm supposed to work out my salvation. But the only thing that's really going on here is this. Is that in both of these, what they're saying is, I need to self-righteously look good on the outside. Look, I've tried both sides and both sides lead to condemnation. Both sides lead you telling you you have to do more. Guess what? 
both sides are really just a way for us to self-righteously glorify ourselves. When we look at working out our salvation as either just trying to let go and ignore sin or trying to hyperactively, legalistically build rules and laws, then all it is is a form of self-glorification. This is why we need to remind ourselves that Paul here doesn't say just work out your salvation, but he says work it out with fear and trembling. We're to work it out with fear and trembling. So what does that mean? Does this mean that I am supposed to fear God like an abusive father? That if I don't work out my salvation, then I better run and hide in my bedroom and lock the door hoping that he doesn't break it in and get me? That's not what Paul is saying here at all. In fact, Paul here is saying something else. The, the fear that Paul is saying here could also be translated into a deep reverence towards God. A deep respect, looking at him as honorable. And the trembling here could also be looked at, as, as David says in the Psalms, as he's trembling with rejoicing. You, you guys ever see a kid who you tell them that you're either going to do something or that they have a prize and they just start shaking with excitement? This is what Paul is talking about here is that this type of working out your salvation with fear and trembling leads to God's glorification. This is a type of awe that says, because you have done so much for me, Father. Because you have sent your son Jesus to die for my sins. I can't help but not out of duty, but out of desire. Every day, work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I just can't help it. There's something inside of me that, that has this strange desire to not do the things that I used to do. This is the type of working out your salvation with fear and trembling that Paul is talking about. It's this strange sanctification for God's glory because God has done so much for you. You can't help but to live a holy life for Him. You can't help but look at His Word and say, I want to live like this. You can't help but to confess your sins when you know you've done something wrong according to God's word. And so we as Christians, as God's people, need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is the ongoing transformation that happens in a believer's Life, that as they live, they continue to look more and more like Christ. If you're a Christian, 
and you look less like Christ over time, then what I would ask you to do is to repent. Because either you've backslidden and forgotten your first love or you do not have a first love at all. And so this is the freedom of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is I no longer say, people, look at me. Look at me, I have my life together. Look at me, I've got my act together. Look at me and pat me on the head and say a good job. We as Christians don't need that anymore because we know that as we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's glorifying God and that's enough for us. That's enough for us. And Paul goes on to say, though, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what's going on here? Because this seems very much so like man's responsibility and God's sovereignty that's at play in these two verses. We've got Paul saying, work out your salvation. Actively pursue sanctification. And then we have Paul saying, oh, but by the way, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's going on here? Well, this is where we actually need to humble ourselves and acknowledge that any fruit of love or joy or peace or patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness, any, any fruit in our lives that is continuing to grow is not because of you. Let me say that again. Any fruit in your life, so say you're sitting here and you're realizing, oh, I'm more self-controlled by God's grace this year than I was last year. Or last year I worried way more than this year. Any fruit that is grown in your life is not a byproduct of your works. It's a byproduct of the Holy Spirit producing that in your heart. It's no different than salvation, really. If we can't earn our salvation, then we don't earn the fruit in our lives. Instead, it is a byproduct of our obedience from the Holy Spirit. So as we walk in obedience according to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. Let me explain it or maybe illustrate it like this. All right, I'm trying desperately this year. Sharice and I are, I guess it's, it's a tag team effort. Sharice and I are trying desperately to make our yard and the, um, I don't know what you 
call the thing in front of your house, but we're trying to plant flowers. We're trying to make sure the grass grows the right way. We're new homeowners. I'm sure in five years, we're probably not going to care about it at all. And so we're trying our best to make our yard look great so that way we can have people over and they can enjoy it. And, and one thing that I am learning, and this is, this is, I think, the best way I can illustrate what Paul is saying here, that we're to work out our salvation and know that it's God who works it in us, is that it's, it's like working on your lawn or it's like gardening or even like farming. You work for that. But at the end of the day, it's not up to you for anything to grow. You don't have control over if this is going to grow or not. What you do have control over is making sure that you do the right things or follow the right patterns to help something grow. But at the end of the day, you just go to sleep and wake up, and if it's grown, then it's grown. And most of the time, unless you just don't have a green thumb, uh, if you do the right things, then there's fruit that's produced. It, in fact, you know, I'm, just, I'm really just stealing this illustration from Jesus because this is what he tells his disciples in Mark. It's like a farmer that goes out to plant. He tills the soil, he plants the seeds, he waters them, he goes to bed, he wakes up, he pulls the weeds, he goes to bed, wakes up, and there's growth. He doesn't know where it comes from. He just sees that it's there. And so this is the active obedience that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives when we are walking according and working out our salvation with this type of fear and trembling. And so here's where we need to, to take very time, a serious time to, to look at ourselves and ask, have we been doing the right things? So what is working out your salvation practically look like? There are ways that the church has done this that has actually caused us to take steps back and fall into one of these two categories of letting go, letting God, and being so focused on our self-righteousness or, or so focused on building up these little things that we forget that it's for God's glory. The church has created so many programs, so many things, so many purity groups, so many recovery groups, and not that those things are wrong, but what we've unintentionally did is instead of wanting to look at our hearts, we have looked at all of the methods and the things around us. So one thing that I commonly hear from men who are struggling with lust is if people, if women just dressed a certain way, then it wouldn't bother them anymore. Here's the thing, your heart is wicked and deceitful. And the sin that you need to kill is the lust in your heart. Here's the thing that I've heard about, uh, heard from men and women who get angry really quickly. Well, if my spouse just didn't say this, or if my children just acted the right way, here's the thing. It's not them. It's you, first and foremost, that you have to look at. And what the church has accidentally done is they put this emphasis on the out there instead of in our hearts. Look, the first and foremost person that you need to be concerned about when it comes to sin is not somebody else, but yourself. Your sin is wicked. Your sin is deceptive. 
My sin is. And so we need to actively work out our salvation with fear and trembling and not put our hope in different programs. Not put our hope in if I just get this accountability website or if I just take these deep breaths or if I just go to the gym and pump some weights and lift or if I cut my grass or I go on these vacations, your sin will continue to follow you if you don't kill them. One of my favorite theologians and Puritans, John Owen, says it like this. I can't say it much better than him uh, because, first off, he was way smarter and probably way more godlier than I am and ever will be. Look, the life of a Christian is this, that you be killing your sin or it will be killing you. And if we do not work out our salvation with fear and trembling, no matter how morally good we look on the outside, we are dead on the inside. So we no longer want to say, I just don't want to gossip anymore. I just don't want to slander anymore. But we want to hear, look at our hearts on the inside and say, why am I saying this about a brother or sister? You want me to tell you why? Because sin is sneaky and seductive and it wants you to make you feel superior and in charge and better than your brother or sister. Do you know why as parents you want to control every little thing your children do? Because yes, you want to protect them, but deep down inside, you want to rule over them. I might be saying that one from experience. You know, when a person is lusting after another person, it's not the other person's fault. It's that in our hearts, we're dehumanizing another person and want rule and authority over them. We want to use them for our own selfish pleasures. And so if we come and try to work out our salvation in a moralistic type of way, look, the sin is going to continue to follow you. It's just going to show up in different ways. And so we must be killing sin before sin kills us. And we must realize that it is God who is working it in us to kill this sin. It is the Holy Spirit. And so Paul tells us this in Romans 8. Magnificent passage in Romans. It's that it's by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. If you try to put the flesh to death by the flesh, you will not kill the flesh. You will only do a good job of masking it. So here, I just want to apply this in a few ways. How do we actively work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Here are a few ways that we actively work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and, and please, stay with me on this last part. The first way we work out our salvation with fear and trembling is we commit ourselves to a local church. That sounds kind of strange. It kind of sounds funny. 
But we, we look at a local church, we say, I'm going I'm to pursue membership. I'm going to say that this body has the ability to judge me so that way they can keep my heart and life in check. I'm going to submit myself to the elders here so that they can watch over my souls. And if they don't watch over my souls, they're going to have a conversation one day with the Lord. And look, I know some of you in here are, are saying, because you're not members here, like, well, it's just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. And I understand that. I get that. I would just slide that piece of paper back and say it's just a piece of paper. What's withholding you from actually signing it and submitting? I understand that there are hard things that have happened in people's lives. I'd be more than willing, Todd or Bill or I would be willing to sit down and talk with you. So first is saying an all-out commitment to the local church, is saying this is the church I'm going to commit to. Over every other church in this area, this is the church I'm committing my soul to for the rest of my life. Other churches may have programs and things, but this is the church. I'm not going to treat church as a, as a buffet where I could get a sermon here and a program there and another program here, but saying these are the people that I'm putting my soul in their hands. This is the community Paul is talking about here. The second way to work out your salvation is reading God's word. Reading it and reading it and reading it. Because as I said earlier in the prayer, God's word is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And these are, this is the guardrail to keep us from stumbling is God's word, and so we read it voraciously. And we read it again and read it again. The next way that we work out our salvation is finding a group of friends. Find a group of friends, find a group of people that keep you accountable. That you can go to them or call them at a moment's notice and say, I need prayer ASAP. I need encouragement ASAP. I just sinned against my child. I sinned against my spouse. I need to bring this sin out of darkness. Which leads to the next way that we work out our salvation is prayer. Paul will tell us later on in this book, do not be anxious about anything but, in, but, but prayer and supplication. And so we are to pray to work out our salvation. When you are tempted to sin, pray. When you are tempted to worry, pray. And finally, remember what Christ has done for you. Working out your salvation, as I have tried to argue this morning, is not moralistic behavioral control. It's a constant reminder that Christ has died for your sins. It's a constant reminder that Christ is interceding on your behalf right now. It's a constant reminder that as Paul is saying in the end of Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do, he follows it up right away with saying, but there is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the reality. 
And as we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we need an honest assessment. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it for self-glorification or God's glorification? This is the amazing reality of the gospel implications that still continue to happen in our lives. This is the, the, the gift that we are given as children. And so I just want to say this lastly, because I don't feel like I did a good job of this in the message. This is the gospel, that you rebelled, I rebelled against God, and that we all fall short of his glory, and that we deserve his justice and wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins, and he has done that perfectly. And for those who believe, it's an amazing thing. All you have to do is believe. That's it. It's just believe. What does that look like? Just trust. For those who trust can be reconciled back to God. That's the gospel. That's what we live. That's what we breathe. That's what we eat. And so, Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you. I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, giving as much glory to God as possible, knowing that as he's growing fruit in my life, as he's growing fruit in your life, it's for his good purpose. That's amazing. It's his good purpose that you're growing to be more like Christ. So let's dedicate ourselves not to simple outward moral change, but to deep heart change. Let's pray. Father, you alone are worthy of our worship. God, we praise you We praise you above all. And so please, as we continue to take steps day by day, as temptation continues to go off like landmines around us and remind us that we are living in a very broken and fallen world, would you remind us as your children that there is therefore now no condemnation. And although we trip up and we slip and we fall, that that you, God, are able to keep us from stumbling. And so let us actively hear this morning, deep in our hearts, allow our affections to be stirred so that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence and rejoicing, reverence and excitement, knowing that you are working in us for your good pleasure. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.